Let us hear the word of God from Romans chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Chentria, that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Great Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are men of note among the apostles. They were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephana and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, eminent in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And may the Lord fill our hearts with the understanding and the application of his gracious word. To his name be all praise and glory. This last chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 16, is often neglected, passed over, with all these names hard to pronounce. What benefit is there in it, we may be asked. But the Holy Spirit is offended when every, any portion of the Word of God is neglected, because it is no mistake that any one of these words are here. They are all here for our instruction and for our benefit and for us to slide over any part is a grievous error. In the midst of this section of the Word of God, we have 
two series of greetings. And between them is a passage about doctrine. Very interesting, the combination of personalities and doctrine. Sometimes we groan when we think of the word doctrine. It may seem like dry bones to us. and It may seem unnecessary and uninteresting. But that's precisely why the Holy Spirit saved this paragraph to the end of the book, that it could be highlighted as very important. It is no afterthought. It is right where God wanted it right where the people would give the most attention. Don't you look for your name in a newsletter or a newspaper? If you find your name, you read the things around it. And God surrounded it with names so that it would stand out with interest. He wanted so much for them to realize that doctrine is the accurate statement of the divine realities and facts concerning our salvation. And the accurate telling and teaching of these divine facts is a very important ministry of the church. Now, the whole book of Romans is a book of doctrine. And it is therefore natural that in the concluding sections, doctrine should form a great part of the summary and loom large as Paul's agenda. I want you to pay attention to the accurate statement of the facts concerning your salvation, which is shorthand for the word doctrine. Now when we try to put the lists of persons and the doctrinal emphasis together, we come up with the teaching of this section, which is that the unity of the people of God consists in individual and corporate obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity of God's people consists in the individual and corporate obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look for a moment at what this obedience and this unity really is. We begin with a list of 22 names and why. Well, we probably have here a list of the whole membership of the Roman church. Isn't that interesting? I can't believe that Paul would have greeted those 22 and left the other 22 out. Not this man of Christian courtesy and of wise discernment. He probably touched the whole membership there with this list. And what he's emphasizing is that the Christian unity is not a morass of individuals a lot of people sort of strung together like beads on a cord, but that the unity of the church is a oneness consisting of separate personalities, but all bound together with a common mastery, all of them united with this single allegiance to the one Lord, the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ. And it is that common unity and allegiance which ties them together, which forms the unity of the body. What is the church's unity? But the thinking together of God's people in accord with the mind of Christ, and with one mind and one heart and one mouth glorifying God. 
That's the unity of the church. Thinking in accord with the mind of Christ and with one mouth glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, blessed unity. And Paul commends the church in Rome for the fact that their obedience is known to all. Having reveled in their unity of these 22 persons, now he goes on to say, you haven't any factions among you. Your obedience is known to all. And thus he ties together their obedience to Christ as the key to their unity. How beautiful it is to see a people, one in doctrine like the Roman church was. This was not a doctrine which Paul brought to them. Some of the Christians in Rome were in Christ before Paul was converted. And the doctrines which he recites in the book of Romans are not new to them. They are the very doctrines in which they have been united, the doctrines which brought them together and in which they rejoice. These are the doctrines which Paul uses to found new churches. And he is giving all his life's energy to the promulgation and the unity that comes from this one body of doctrine in Christ. Now that says to us that our unity as a people will come from our common obedience to the one head. It doesn't come simply by working on our relationships with each other. That is important. But its primary fountain is our common love for and loyalty to the blessed head of the church. That's why we're told in Scripture, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as we obey Christ. Let's take a living illustration. If one is injured by another, it is up to the injured party if the other has not taken the initiative, to go to the injurer and in a friendly and humble way to point out that there is something which exists between them, which is breaking the love and fellowship. This is in accord with Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. But how many times in the body of Christ are we disobedient to his specific command and we allow the injury to fester within us and produce evil and a rift and a schism even within the body because we are disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ at that point. How much better in terms of building and developing the unity of God's people that we would commit ourselves as the Roman people did to obeying the Lord Jesus at all costs and in all precepts. Now notice that Paul goes on in this doctrinal paragraph from 17 through 20 to discuss the fact that detractors of this unity will arise. That is a remote possibility. They are not now present. They are not even on the horizon. But Paul knows the human heart and he knows that it is inevitable that some will enter that fellowship and produce dissensions and divisions. And when they come, he wants the Roman Christians to know their source. 
divisions are from beneath. They are the product of the work of Satan. Division is condemned in Holy Scripture. And when divisions and dissensions and difficulties arise, you will know from whence they come. We're not speaking here of standing for the truth of God, but of divisions and dissensions, the criteria of which will be shown in a moment. Now we're to be very clear here that God is not speaking about the person who is conscientiously mistaken on a point. We will all be mistaken in some parts of our own understanding. But if we are seeking the will of God and trying to obey Scripture, even though our understanding will always be incomplete and partial, nevertheless, we want to do the will of God. But those who come in and create these dissensions and difficulties are perverting the Word of God. They know they are not in consonance with Scripture, and they are the tools of the enemy of the church. Now, we are told here very clearly something about these, that when they come, they create all kinds of difficulties, and they work havoc in the church. They do not have full obedience to Christ. That's the mark of them. Do you see it there? Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Now, the Roman church, you must remember, was a church made up mostly of slaves. And these slaves' whole way of thinking was submission. They had to develop the mindset of utter obedience. Many of these slaves were better educated than their masters. They were doctors and lawyers and dentists who had become houseboys. And so it was very difficult for them. But they had to learn this matter of utter obedience to their master. And especially as Christians did they learn it. That transferred over easily into their loyalty to Jesus Christ. And so it was unthinkable for them to be in rebellion against their master, Christ. But Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And he is saying that these false teachers are those who not merely intellectually differ from the others, but they are actually in rebellion against Christ. And though they know his law and his word, they choose to follow something else, their own natural appetites. And that is the great horror of error in the Christian church, that what it really comes down to is disobedience of the human heart to the God of truth and the revelation of truth, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. They serve not the Lord Christ. Now think of the effect of such a person in a congregation. It says here they will create dissensions and difficulties. They tear believers out of the unity of the body. And there are many 
teachings abroad today that are doing just that. These teachings are called here scandals in the Greek. Difficulties is a weak translation for what ought to be written, death traps. The death trap of the soul exists in these heresies. I remember one evening some years ago, we were destined to leave on vacation that day and for some reason I cannot recall, we, we could not get off that day, and we sat in the living room with long faces, looking at each other, waiting for the next morning to start out. And a knock came on the door. And here was a friend who had come to the church, who had given her life to Christ, and she said, tomorrow I am to be baptized into the way. And I thought, just one more time, I'll check this out with the pastor. Then I saw why God had not let us go on that vacation. And we sat down with our Bibles and showed her the error that was in the midst of that teaching. And they are abroad everywhere. We have people who sat in these pews, who took these vows, who are today in Mormon assemblies. People who believe in second blessings people who have followed all kinds of strange and anti-biblical teaching, creating divisions, dissensions, death traps for the human soul. And you will see them. They will arise in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Do you see it there? Now we're told here how to recognize false teachers. They will come to you, it says, serving their own appetites. Now we must be careful here because we can be misled. In the King James it reads, their God is their belly. They serve their own belly in another place of Scripture. And we may begin to think that this person simply likes luxurious living and will do anything to satisfy their own appetites. That's not the meaning. That is a reference back to Eve. Remember, Eve ate the apple. She was deceived, and in a sense, at that moment, her own belly became her God because she obeyed her belly rather than her God. She obeyed her lower nature rather than the voice of God. And that is precisely what the false teachers are doing. They are not serving the Lord Christ or your interests, but some of their own agenda, some need within themselves. You see, they may be very disciplined. They may live a very austere and severe life. And you say, they're not serving their bellies. It's not simply hunger or luxury they want. Rather, it is some motive within themselves which they are serving rather than obedience to the Lord Christ. Now, the second way in which you can detect a false teacher is the way he speaks. He speaks words that beguile you, that promise something. They say, now, you're not getting all you could get out of the Christian life. Uh, it's so much more beneficial to you this way. It sounds very pious. It sounds great. They're promising you something more, and you fall for it. That's exactly what... Excuse me, what it says. 
fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. You want all that God has for you. I know your hearts. And that makes you all the more vulnerable to the person who comes with smooth words and promises all your problems will be solved with this little truth, this little teaching. Don't fall for that. In great tribulation, we shall inherit the kingdom of God. There are no shortcuts, no instant answers, no immediate remedies for indwelling sin. And another way you'd recognize the false teacher is with flattery. He indulges you. He flatters you. He doesn't challenge your life. He doesn't show you the hard things that you need to hear and see and do, but promises you an easy road, a flattering road. Oh, how much havoc can be wreaked by one false teacher in a congregation. And that's Paul's great summary in his letter to the, doctor, uh, to the, to the Roman Christians. But happily, he has in this paragraph how to prevent the entrance of false teachers. And let's just touch on that for a moment. He says there, and again, it strikes me that the, the Revised Standard Version we're using here is a bit weak. It says, take note of those who create dissensions. But that is not the word in the original is scopane, which means be on the lookout for. Watch out for, keep your eyes peeled for these. Not that we should be heresy hunters, but that we should be utterly alert and never neglect our watchfulness about who is teaching and what they are teaching within the household of God. Not simply take note, that sounds too casual, but be on the watch for them. How many churches? have suffered greatly by an easy neglect of teaching and seen souls fall into the death traps of heresy. Then the other great preventive, which is here, is in verse 18, just two words, avoid them. And again, it is much stronger in the Greek. It's the aorist imperative, which is decisive and definitive, and it means keep your distance, disincline yourself, move away from them, not simply from their teaching, but from them because of their teaching. Don't develop a strong and fraternal relation with those who hold false doctrine. Avoid them, it says. We need to hear that. The common word of the day is fellowship with them. See? And there's a place for understanding and loving people of all points of view. But not at the point of the deepest areas of Christian fellowship. Here's where we need to obey the word of God. Avoid them. Then comes one of the most powerful preventatives in this matter of false doctrine. And it is this. He says, I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless or simple as to what is evil. I would have you 
to what is good. What he means here is the best prevention against false doctrine is a full and thorough knowledge of true doctrine. When the counterfeiting teams are being trained to spot phony bills, they don't look at phony bills. They study the real thing, and they know that real thing so well that nobody has to say to them, hey, that's phony. If they studied the phony, they wouldn't be able to recognize another phony. What God wants is the people of God to be so well taught, especially at the level of the elders and deacons, to be so well grounded in true orthodox doctrine that immediately someone coming with another sounding doctrine will stand out as a phony in doctrine. I would have you wise in that which is good. Now there's a, an even more general application of this. When the Christian sets out to do good, he is to be very wise in the doing of it, lest he spoil it. Many Christians spoil their good endeavors by lacking wisdom in the execution of it. They don't ask, is this the right time to do this? Is this the right way to say it? Am I the right person to do it? How should it be done? It is so very important in the doing of good that we pray earnestly for wisdom that our good not be evil spoken of and not result in harm. Then he said, be simple in evil. And the idea is that when your conscience once pronounces a teaching or an activity as evil, that's the end of it. Don't debate with it. Don't reason with it. It is over. Be simple in evil. No, that's the end of it. He who debates is already in danger. God doesn't want us to have cunning and dexterity in regard to evil. He wants us to be rookies, clumsy, inadept with a matter of evil. And so God says to us, be simple in evil. Not necessary to understand and know all that the cults teach. It's not necessary to know all the street names of the drugs and all of their effects and all of those things. I suppose some Christians have to dig in and find these things for the whole Christian community. But in for the most of us, we are to be simple, guileless in the matter of evil. If I were writing the scriptures. I might have done it the other way. Know all you can about evil, but be simple about good. But God says no. If in evil you are able, ability leads to danger. And if in good you are simple, simplicity is the parent of mistake. Then comes the great promise of hope. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh, what good news that is. And here Paul, by the Spirit, takes this wonderful word, the God of peace, which means 
the God who brings together that which is separated. And dissensions and divisions and false doctrines divide the people of God. False doctrine always separates us from one another. But true, apostolic doctrine unites us because truth is one. And so the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the point, of course, is the last day when God will have victory over his enemy, Christ over Antichrist. But even before that time, there will be little skirmishes and little victories in which God gains the edge over unbelief and error and false teaching. We ought to expect that day by day, watching God crush Satan under our feet. God communicates strength, but it always flows through a person. And God wants to crush Satan under your feet. Therefore, sustain strength in the midst of combat with Satan. Don't give in to Satan's wiles, to his errors, to his temptations. Don't even let your little finger be used unconsciously in any effort of Satan. But let God crush Satan through you. I perceive that this paragraph is so important for this hour when religious confusion abounds. This is the time for orthodoxy, which is continuity with a vibrant past and with thrilling apostolic truth. Obedience to Christ is the heart of orthodoxy. And obedience to Christ is the basis of our unity. You say, how can it be helped? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. That is like a fountain coming out of the Son of God and refreshing the people of God with the strength and the discernment and the wisdom and the grace that they may avoid evil and be wise in good, that they may be on the lookout for error and preserve the truth, and that they may have the joy of seeing Satan crushed under their feet. Let us pray. Blessed and only God, all truth is thine, from thy hand thou hast spoken the words of life. Be pleased to bless and enable by the ministry of thy Holy Spirit the preservation of sound doctrine in the midst of our church. Grant to our elders great wisdom and diligence, a vigilant heart, and the Spirit of Christ himself as they watch over the flock. Grant to each of us, Lord, such a full and wholehearted obedience to Christ that we will not allow ourselves in the breach of any of his truths or of his commandments. Grant us joy to feel the oneness there comes in that common fealty to Christ our Savior. In his name we ask.